Welcome to Street Smart Success, where real estate entrepreneurs share their backgrounds, experience, and lessons learned. This is Roger Becker, your host. Learn with me as I drill down with guests about their paths to success and what they're doing now. So today, finally, we have a lady. <laughs> it's been, it's it's been all men. I can't even tell you. I, I didn't know there were any women left there for a minute. So I I'm full of hope this morning. Uh, we have a, a lady who is an expert in corporate housing, has a phenomenal background, and has a tremendous amount to share about this incredible asset class. She is Angela Healy. Angela, welcome to Street Smart Success. Thank you so much for having me, Roger. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, you and me both. And so I guess I'm going to ask you a question of which I already know the answers to because you and I have just had the discussion. But for the audience's sake, tell me about the upbringing of Angela Healy. You know, where are you from? Where did you live as, as a kid growing up and all that? And kind of what's the what's the background story? Well, I my family moved all over when I was young, um, but I pretty much grew up in New Orleans and um, really enjoyed um, some time there, but then took the opportunity after I graduated from high school and went to college outside of St. Louis. And then after college, moved out to San Francisco Bay Area, really enjoyed it there. Although going to San Francisco right after college is a little tough because you're broke and San Francisco is so expensive. Um, so I did move over, move around a little bit more and ultimately landed in Denver. And I've been here in Denver for about 20 years. 20 years. And, and Denver's changed uh, dramatically as so many cities has yeah, as, as well. Uh, well, I got to tell you, it's probably not news to you, but San Francisco got only more and more and more and more expensive yes. uh, since, <laughs> since, since you left. How in the world did you, Angela, wind up in corporate housing? Well, there it, it was definitely a journey and it found me versus me finding it. Um, I, My parents, um, as I was growing up, they had passive income with um, rental properties and they rented them fully furnished by the room um, to either men or women, depending on which house they had. Um, and um, and found that they were able to make considerably more money by renting it by the room than fully furnished than they did renting the home unfurnished. And they used those funds to put all four children through um, a private college outside of St. Louis. And so that whole idea of passive income was ingrained in me ever since I was little. And the value of real estate um, is ingrained in me as well, just because, you know, you can have your nine to five job, but ultimately if you want to create real wealth, I think it needs to be in, um, passive income in it and also the real estate opportunity. Um, but when I graduated from college, I became a commercial lender out in California 
um, worked for banks and the likes that no longer exist, including um, First Interstate Bank. Wells Fargo is still there. So um, I, I was at Wells Fargo for a bit. And then I was with Silicon Valley Bank for about 10 years. And unfortunately, they just had their demise um, within the last month. So um, so most of the banks that I work for are no longer in existence. But um, I purchased my very first piece of real estate in San Francisco, um, with funds that my parents made me put away from my summer jobs when I was in middle school and high school, you know, all your babysitting jobs and things like that. They put that in an investment account for me. And it was enough to, for me to purchase my very first piece of real estate. And it was a condo at, um, Park Telegraph, um, in the North Beach area of San Francisco. And after living there for about six months, I was very house poor, very house poor. And um, a friend of mine said, hey, well, this is the perfect building for corporate housing. You should move out of the home that you own and go rent something so you won't be house poor. And we will rent this to a corporation on your behalf and you'll make X amount of income. And so that was my very first piece of real estate, my very first entree into corporate housing. It was extremely successful. Um, and then I just started adding more from there. Wow. So you really like, <laughs> you did it from the ground up. I did. Uh, cool. Okay. And so not that it matters, but who was the, who was the corporation that the person slash persons worked for? And do you have any recollection of what, what the rent was? Yes. So um, it was Oakwood Corporation. They were the original granddaddy of corporate housing. And unfortunately, they are not really around anymore either. Um, they were purchased by um, an Asian corporation who wanted all their real estate, but didn't want the corporate housing rentals. Um, so the corporate housing side of that kind of imploded a few years back. But um but so Oakwood rented it and they had rented it from me um, for $3,000 per month back in 1995. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So, and I, back then, I wonder like what the market rent like for long term would have been, I don't know, what, 16, 1800, who knows? Yeah, something like not, that. I'm not 100% Whatever. sure. Whatever. Okay. <laughs> I get but talk. I know I was able to go and find an apartment for, you know, $1,500. So to be able to make the income of 3000 you know, it was not only paying for my rent, but gave me the ability to live in San Francisco without feeling completely broke. <laughs> not completely broke. Yes, not completely. <laughs> I was still eating ramen noodles, but not completely broke. <laughs> okay. That is funny. Okay. And so you, so you, you rented it to Oakwood and then they, they found tenants so they did like a master lease and then they just found tenants and, and just correct. took care of all that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and so then, then what from there? That's interesting. Um, so I continued my banking career and it moved me um, around the country. Uh, Silicon Valley Bank was opening offices throughout the country. So I ended up in Atlanta. I was, in, I was enjoying Atlanta. It's a beautiful area, but it wasn't quite right for me. You know, I had lived in the South growing up and I was just looking for something a little bit different. Um, and I stumbled across um, Denver and I was helping um, a friend who had a, a business, Avenue West. I was helping them do some accounting on the side. And I had interviewed with Silicon Valley Bank to try to transfer to their Denver location. And as I was there interviewing, 
Um, I went into the Avenue West office and was helping them with their accounting. And they looked at me and they said, hey, don't work for Silicon Valley Bank. Come and work for us full time. And that's when I joined Avenue West full time and moved to Denver in 2004. Okay. And what did you do for them when you started? Um, I was a real estate agent already. Um, I didn't have a license in Colorado, so I did get my license in Colorado as well. But I started out doing their accounting initially um, and then eventually started to run the Denver office. And then we expanded into Colorado Springs and into San Francisco because they had a really neat business model um, that is unlike most of the other corporate housing companies out there. And I felt that model was really duplicatable, um, really sustainable. And I believed quite a bit in the model. And um, and that's what made me join them. Okay. And what is the model? Um, traditional corporate housing, the corporate housing company will go out and rent an apartment and put rental furniture and all the utilities and housewares into the property. And, um, and then they will hope that they are able to sublease it. And the model that Avenue West has is that we... Um, we're real estate agents and we work with individual homeowners, whether it's a home, condo, townhome, um, and we manage that property for them and rent it to the corporations. So the corporations, I feel, are getting a much better product because it's a less transient neighborhood. It's a home ownership area versus being an apartment, um, which is all rentals. And we're putting in uh, furniture specifically for the property. We're not just renting you know, rental furniture. It's, it's been customized for that property. And then we're able to one, provide the property owner with a higher income than they would get if they rented it unfurnished, kind of like I received in California. Um, but then two, we're able to then offer the corporations an even better product. So it's kind of a win-win all around. And it just was a lot more sustainable than the traditional model. So on the, and I don't know anything about corporate housing. And so that's why I was so excited to talk to you. So the, the traditional ones, you said it's typically apartments. Do they, so what do they do? Do they go to the owner of an apartment building and take out certain amount of units and then furnish them and go, Hey, I'll take these floor, I'll take floors two, three, and four, whatever the heck it is. And then just kind of furnish them, you know, with a stock you know, rental of typical furniture and, and that's, yes. is that how they work? It is. And depending on how large they are, maybe they take out one, two, three in a building. If they're a much larger company, they might do it by the floor. Um, it could be either way, you know, and they, you know, they're looking for buildings that have, um, you know, good amenities, um, nice upgrades, you know, kind of that class A uh, multifamily dwelling. Okay. And how do you, and so you guys are kind of more, like, like you said, custom, one-off, you're finding somebody with a, a single family home, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm wrong, but maybe like a three, two, 1800 square feet in a cool neighborhood, or it could great be a school district and mm-hmm. a great, okay, great school district. Could mm-hmm. be a condo. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, 75% of our inventory is condos and townhomes and or, I'm sorry, 75% of our inventory are one bedrooms. Because typically when a corporation is bringing someone in on assignment or relocating someone, um, a lot of times it's a single individual. Even if the project is bringing 15 people, 
they don't want to combine them into one home or a couple of homes. They want to give them all their own space at night. So um, we we have several condo buildings um, like downtown Denver. We have a building called the Spire or the Glass House, and they have a lot of one bedroom properties in there where we manage. So in the Spire, we manage about um, 35 properties for 35 different property owners, all in the same building. And that gives us that group capability. When we have large groups come in, they all want to be in the same building. They just want their own place. Um, we can place them in the spire or in the glass house or, you know, buildings like that. So if 75% are one one bedrooms, and I guess that's intuitive, I, that makes sense. What percentage of those then are, are those are condos? Um, from the one bedrooms, they're, they're all condos. They're all condos. Okay. Yeah. All right. And so are these investors then, people that bought a condo? Yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, we work with the building, the HOA. So if someone was living there and then they're like, they're going to purchase a home instead of selling the condo, a lot of times they'll turn that into a rental and start their real estate portfolio. We also get investors that are specifically purchasing the property for us. Um, and we tell them, okay, use this building or, you know, look at this location because we know we can get the highest rents in this location. So we work with the investors before they purchase or we target buildings that we know will work well. Awesome. So for an investor, what kind of returns versus what kind of risks? That sounds like an amazing thing. You just buy it and you guys handle everything. It sounds like a dream come true. <laughs> it's definitely passive income for them. Obviously, the rate of return is going to depend on how much capital they put down. But if you compare it to unfurnished rentals, the unfurnished rental, you will get consistently every month of the year. Um, whereas ours, you know, we always ask our property owners to look at about an 80% occupancy. So you might not get a rent check every single month, but your annual net number will be higher than what it is um, on an unfurnished and the wear and tear on the property is significantly less because uh, people aren't doing anything to their corporate apartments that will make them get disciplined at work. They're not having big parties. They're not, <laughs> you know, they're not bringing their own furniture in. They're not hanging pictures on the walls. You know, Tim and I, uh, Tim's my husband, we had um, unfurnished rental properties in addition to our corporate rental properties. And every time someone moved out of the unfurnished, it was like, do we have to replace the carpet? What they do to all the blinds? Do we, did they take all the closet doors off the closets? You know, are we repainting? You know, there was a certain amount of capital we knew we had to put back into the property every time somebody moved out. And with the furnished, um, you know, 99% of the time someone moves out and looks exactly the same as when they moved in. Maybe just a little dirtier, but we have cleaners that can handle that. And if, if something does happen to the property, you have, um, a, you know, a, a nice corporation that's on the other end of the, of the transaction and we just send them a bill for what happened and then they cut us a check for replacement or repair, you know, whatever needs to happen. What's the average length of stay? Our average, so our leases are month to month. They have to sign no more than a 30-day lease, um, but our average stay is 99 days. So just over three months. Oh, so it's it's, it's pretty, you're saying it, it, it lease can't be more than a month, you said? Right, because corporations can't commit themselves to longer than the kind of the minimum term, um, which is the, which is the 30 days. Um, but they do have to provide us with a 30 day notice so the tenant can stay in the property for as long as they need. And then they give us a 30 day notice when they're ready to vacate. 
But that way, if the employee leaves unexpectedly or the assignment ends or they need to move the employee to a different assignment, they're only obligated for an additional 30 day period of time of potentially unexpected. Why, why can't why can't they commit? I'm, I stepped on your last couple words, which I apologize. That's okay. Why can't they commit to more than 30 days? Is that like a, a regulation or something? Or? No, it's just their own risk. They don't want to take because they can't control that employee. Okay. So if the employee were to leave or do something, they need to be able to reduce that risk. So if they had signed a year lease and you know two weeks into the project, the employee decides, I hate this job, and they turn around and they leave, then they would have been stuck with the lease for a full year. Whereas if they had the ability to give 30 day notice, their obligation is limited to that 30 days. Is it is it typical to have like an arrangement? How do I want to frame this question? Is it typical for, let's say, one condo to basically have one corporation that's consistently occupying <laughs> with their employees or is it kind of well one month it's this corporation, but you also have a relationship with another corporation and it's kind of just mix and match. How does that fall out? It, it can be both. Um, I've had properties where it was the same company all the time, but then I've also had other properties where um, it's this corporation this this time and then another corporation another time. Um, and, and that's the beauty of having a building like where you have a concentration of properties because you can look at what's coming available. And if someone's coming in on Friday and someone's leaving on Thursday, you'd say, okay, well, you get apartment, you know, nine ten because that works best for me and my occupancy. You don't, they choose the building, but they don't necessarily get to choose which property in the building so that we can, like a hotel, keep our occupancy as high as possible. I see. And typically, like like roughly, what kind of fees do you guys charge? Because it's pretty sure. labor intensive. It I would, is very yeah. labor intensive. Yeah. Um, so it's typically um, a 70-30 rental split off the rental rate. So it's 30%. Um, so it's um, more than unfurnished because we're doing considerably amount more work. Um, it's less than um, furnished rental, uh, vacation rentals. I've seen some vacation rentals charge as much as um, 50%. So um, we're kind of in the middle there with regards to our length of stay and, and how much turn we're doing. And then from a geographic footprint, well, first of all, I should back up. This is a franchise as well, correct? It is. We have um, franchised the model because what we what we found as I was expanding um, Avenue West into Colorado Springs and then out to San Francisco, um, everywhere I went, I had to have a real estate license for that state. And by the time I had my third real estate license, I felt like I was doing more continuing education than I ever wanted to do. And the idea of having 50 of these was impossible. And so we kind of looked around the real estate industry and obviously real estate is very big in franchising and realized that that was probably the best model. So it, it ended up giving us a couple of things. One, you have the, the real estate agent on the ground um, ha handling and managing the properties for the investors. Um, but the second thing that it gave us was that uh, pride of ownership. So corporate housing is definitely in the hospitality industry and everything has to be perfect when a guest walks into the property um, or else you could lose 
you know, a hundred million dollar account. I mean, if you put the head of HR into a property and they have a, a very bad experience, they're going to stop using you. So that will affect every one of your properties, not just the one that they're in. So that attention to detail and that pride of ownership that we received from our franchisees was key in the model in terms of making sure that every property, while they're unique, has a minimum set of standards that we that we impose on the property for someone to move in. So it, from a franchisee perspective, I, I would imagine it works like all that you choose, you know, you buy into certain geographic areas. Is 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 that, is it basically done by like major metro or is it even diced more micro than that? So if it's from Manhattan, I don't know if you have a franchisee there, but would it just be, you know, a certain part of Manhattan? How does it get diced up? So we do want a franchise to have at least a million um, people in population. So Denver is actually split between Denver and Denver South. There's two very distinct business centers in Denver. Um, So other areas like LA, you know, we could easily see that being multiple franchises. The other piece of it is, is if it takes you like Atlanta, it takes, depending on the given time, it could take you over an hour or maybe even two hours to get from one end of Atlanta to the exact opposite corner. And so it just doesn't make sense operationally for you to have properties across that kind of distance and spread your team really thin. Um, so it, it makes more sense to have your properties concentrated in terms of your own franchise profitability. You're going to be a lot more profitable that way. You said you, you and your husband, and I know when you started uh, with Avenue West, it was a friend. Some point along the way, did you acquire the company? I did. Um, my husband and I acquired the company. And unfortunately, my my friend went through a divorce and decided, wanted to go a completely different direction. And so Tim and I had the opportunity to purchase. We had owned a franchise. We had owned Avenue West Denver, the, the Denver franchise, before we purchased the parent company. And we did that in 2017. Okay. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. What, what are, what are, inevitably it, it's by market, but what's a range of rents? Mate, or, yeah, what's the most you guys can get? Those are two different questions. <laughs> they are. So I, I do have um, a three bedroom in San Francisco where I've been able to get upwards of 12,000 a month. Um, we we have an, another property in San Francisco. It's not one under management, but we have another property in San Francisco where we're getting 18,000 a month. So the numbers can be fairly high um, on average. Um, like a one bedroom in Denver is anywhere between 3,000, 3,500. Um, whereas a one bedroom in San Francisco is typically at 4,000, 4,500. Um, so it really, it does depend on the area. It does depend on um, its finishes and desirability. Interesting. Wow. For something that rents for 18 grand a month, what does that condo cost? I mean, I don't expect you to really have oh, that exactly, but just generally, is it, is this like an 8 million, $8 million condo or something or a $5 million condo? <laughs> In San Francisco, how much are three bedroom uh, flats? Uh, they're, yeah. they're pricey. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what, how would you describe, and again, this could be obvious, but it's not to me. So what are the typical client? What is the typical corporation? What is the typical job description of the person uh, and that kind of thing? So 
pretty much a lot of corporations, if, if they have multiple offices, e- even if they just have their one office in one city, um, if they're hiring consultants um, and bringing consultants in on assignment, if they have multiple offices where they might be moving people from one location to the other, um, those are two of the largest uses of corporate housing. Um, a third can be training. So if they bring people in, so they they might be working remotely or they might be in outlying offices, but they come to a central location for training um, and maybe they're here for a month on training. Interns, summer interns, um, where they will come and stay for 90 days over the summer. Um, That's another use of corporate housing. Um, But we also have things like um, insurance claims. So if someone's home unfortunately catches fire or if they have a flood damage um, and they need the insurance a lot for um, like-kind property. So if it's a home that was flooded or on fire, then they're offered another home of similar size and characteristics. So um, we do a lot with insurance as well. And some of those can be, you know, a year um, if it was pretty substantial damage. So. We, but we also, you know, during the pandemic, we obviously had to think a little bit outside of the box um, as corporations recalled everyone home and said, get out of your corporate apartment. Um, but then what we found was the individuals that we work with at those corporations, they were kind of fleeing the areas where they were living. They didn't want to be in New York where it was a hotbed. And so they turned to us and said, I'm going to personally move my family. Where can you put me? Um, And another thing that we see sometimes is grandparents that are coming to help with the first grand, first or second grandchild. They don't want to stay in the home where the child is. They want to be able to go somewhere and somewhere private where they can sleep at night. Um, and so we, we put up a lot of grand grandparents for the month, the first time that their grandbabies are born. Are those people using like, um, but those wouldn't be your one bedroom condo types. Those would be a different, right? Okay. Yeah. Do you even have a sense of percentage of, I'll narrow it down so it becomes an easier question. What percentage of of Fortune 500 companies utilize corporate housing? A 100%. No kidding. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They all, they all have their, um, departments that handle, um, the, uh, the process, but absolutely. And you'll, you're going to come down the line. It's not just Fortune 500. Um, there's a lot of other, um, companies. Um, you know, one of, one of my largest local customers, um, in Denver was just a consulting firm. Um, they maybe had a hundred consultants, but I would, their consultants were not doing projects necessarily right here in Denver. They were doing projects all over the country. So I was, um, housing them in other areas of the country while, while they did their assignments. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a huge company. Obviously a huge company is wonderful because you can get a a lot of reservations from the same corporation. And they, they want to work with a company like ours um, that's in the corporate housing industry that handles mobility across the country. So if you were to start up your own corporate housing company and you just had the one city, you're, you're not, you're not dealing with Coca-Cola directly. You know, they might eventually use you through wholesaling, but um, you have to be a nationwide or even global 
corporation to work with the Fortune 500 companies. Interesting. So what does the sales process look like then along all those lines? So if we were to work with a Fortune 500 company? Yeah. Going through the RFP process. Yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) You know, and they want to make sure that you can... You know, they, they don't want a thousand vendors. They might be in a thousand cities, but they don't want a thousand vendors. They want maybe a handful um, that can handle 99% of their business. So that's why they look to the companies that have offices or have locations across the country so that they can come to one of five people and be like, I need to place these 30 people. Show me what it looks like. Um, but so this isn't to be a devil's advocate. This is not not intended this way. But well, I'm making an assumption. I might be completely wrong. Are you guys in all major metros of the U.S. with your with your network of franchisees? So right now we um, we have 16 locations servicing um, over 200 cities, and then we have um, partners that are helping us with the with our gaps currently. And then we are looking at adding franchisees in our gaps. Okay. So is it, so easy is the wrong word because nothing's easy. I guess, what does that do given your current, that what you just described, how does that play into the RFP? Because if I'm somebody making that decision and I work for Coke as your example, maybe it's easier just to go to somebody that's just one shop. I, Hey, I don't want to deal with somebody that's created these partnerships do you encounter that or not necessarily? You know, not is it necessarily because okay because um, even even the largest corporate housing companies um, they have partnerships too. So I think that that partnership piece has been um, accepted. Now, certainly, it would be wonderful if we had franchisees in every major city across the country. That would be wonderful. That is definitely my my vision, my goal. I would I would love to see that. Um, it's going to take us a little bit to get there. But that's the ultimate goal is to have boots on the ground in every major city that is an Avenue West boots on the ground. And in, in, in what is the sales process like? Not so much so. So like once you once you get to participate in the RFP process, which in my, you know, my other line of work, other than doing these podcasts, when I get an RFP, I'm always torn. Do I do I respond to this RFP or do I put a fork in my eye? It's it's always a, 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 a tough <laughs> it's a tough call. But any but anyway, that's that's for another conversation that's not going to play into this podcast. But but in order to be included in the RFP, they need to know who you are, and that's kind of a, a marketing sales process. So what does that look like? It is, and um, that's the nice thing about being part of a franchise is that a local office doesn't necessarily have to go through that process. We're going to do that at the, at the national level. Tim and I have a team of employees um, and we've just recently added to that group um, with some industry veterans. Um, Britt Bemis has come over and that is their forte. They love doing RFPs. They love working with the large corporations. They've been doing it for 20 plus years in the industry. So they know a lot of the players that are out there. And um, so if, if I can add pieces like that to our overall corporation, such that the franchisee just has to kind of worry about their local market, their properties, their relationships with their investors, and then we're doing these other pieces, to me, that's the ideal world. 
because of each one of the offices had to hire someone to do some of the things that I can hire one person to do across the, the company. Um, that's a much better use of money. I see. How competitive is it? So how many, how many, you know, companies of your size or larger, let's say, are in the country kind of elbowing each other out to, to get the business? <laughs> there's, there's, there's enough of us. Certainly, uh, everyone has kind of their um, forte, if you will. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll see how the landscape changes over, over time. And I mean, Oakwood, like I said, was the original granddaddy. And, you know, the, the Asian company came in and pretty much imploded them. So that left a lot of um, market share available for companies to kind of gobble up. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it continues to change our landscape. But I mean, is it like, Angela, is it hundreds? Is it? Oh, no, no. Okay. Is it 10 no. to 20? I'm just trying to just yeah. get a ballpark sense. Yes. We're part of the Corporate Housing Providers Association. Um, you know, and there's several hundred companies that are a part of that corporate, uh, of that association. Okay. So I think our last uh, conference, there were maybe 500 people at the conference. So. Okay, I got it, but it's it's just seem, but it's in, in, a, in a huge size. It's a huge industry, though. Yes, several billion dollar industry. Yes. Yeah, so so everybody can eat if you get your <laughs> even close to your pro rata share, you make a, yes. a great living. <laughs> exactly. Okay, I'm just this is what I do. I mean, I don't. I'm just you know here to to learn. Okay, very interesting. How how does it do in recessions? Um, certainly, you know if if you're tech heavy right now, you could be hurting, you know, I mean, obviously tech is doing a lot of layoffs. Um, so making sure you're diversified across different, um, different industries is important. Um, and we are so, um, and then also, you know, having other, certainly, you know, the pandemic was something that none of us had ever faced before. That was pretty major. Um, but, you know, Avenue West was able to weather that um, fairly, fairly, I mean, I wouldn't say easily. I mean, I, certainly there were days where I was panicking, but um, but it ended up being a lot easier than I thought it was going to be. And a lot of that had to do with those relationships that we had with the companies and then them saying, okay, I want to get out of New York. So, you know, and putting all those individual, they, and those were individual leases at the time um, up during that. And then as corporations started traveling again, you know, that started shifting. Um, but the other piece that we're seeing is right now, individuals are taking the opportunity since they are working remotely, working from home of saying, hey, why don't I tour the United States and I'm going to go to this city for 90 days and then this city for 90 days or, or um, oh, I'm not sure I like that city just as much. Let's go over to this city now. And um, we're finding some, of, and it's a lot of millennials, they're kind of hopping from one of our offices to the other. Oh, what do you have over here now? <laughs> um, and so that's that's been fun to help them as well. Well, are there and slash how many other franchises are there in corporate housing? So Marriott had a franchise for a while, um, but that ended up breaking up. They were sold to Oakwood. Um, and then obviously I've already told you what happened with Oakwood. There was one other franchise a while ago, uh, Bridge Street did, did some things where they um, did some partnerships. And um, unfortunately, Bridge Street did not live through COVID. So right now, I'm the only one that I can think of. So um, Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
Awesome. And and how many franchisees do you have? We're 16 offices. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. Is it, I, I'm sure it's not mandatory, but is it, can somebody with not a real estate background come in? Like what, what are the key skills that, that you think are, are required or helpful to be successful as a franchisee? So we have had some people without real estate licenses uh, join. Um, they do need to get their real estate license pretty quickly um, after joining. And then um, most states require, you know, the two-year requirement before you can be a managing broker. So they either have to hire a managing broker for that two-year period of time. I've been other offices managing brokers, depending on if there was reciprocation um, in different states compared to where I have licenses. It's not my favorite thing in the world to do since I have to do continuing education in that new state. But uh, there are ways around not having the real estate license initially. Certainly, I think as a realtor, if you have a real estate license, um, the dynamic for real estate agents is changing, you know, with all the online capabilities through Zillow and everything. It is definitely getting a little bit harder to be a real estate agent, even though hundreds and thousands of people keep applying to become real estate agents. I do see that dynamic shifting. And one of the things that we're offering to a real estate agent is additional lead sources as well. So not only could you have a very nice lifestyle business through the corporate housing, but if you think about who we're working with, one, we're working with investors that might purchase properties to put in your program, or maybe they need to do a 1031 exchange or you know, eventually sell the property, whatever it might be. And then we're relocating people into the area. Well, those, their corporate housing is their temporary assignment, a temporary place to live. And we can help them purchase properties after they stay in our corporate housing. So it's, it's an additional lead source um, for realtors in terms of their real estate business as well. Uh, yeah, it makes uh, a ton of sense. From the standpoint of somebody that's a, a property owner, an investor, are there people or companies that this is kind of like their primary real estate investment strategy? Are there people that scale this up and you know, is it more like onesies, twosies? There, you know, certainly there are companies out there that have purchased buildings like the Waterwalk building. And they, that was a franchise. They franchised that around um, the country where people would purchase these buildings and they would do half of it unfurnished, half of it furnished. The problem with those buildings is that it is in one spot. You don't have variety to give to the corporation. Now, if it happens to be right next to the corporation, maybe that one spot is a great spot, but then you're servicing that one company. You have a very high concentration and say it was a tech company that suddenly laid everybody off. Then all of a sudden you have no occupants. So I think having that one piece of real estate is, is risky. Then if you look at the overall um, aspect in terms of your asset classes, um, I think it should be like stocks and bonds. You know, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. You do some unfurnished, you do some furnished, you do maybe you have some Airbnb even, or you do some in Denver, you do some in San Francisco. You know, you, you diversify your portfolio as much as you can instead of having all your eggs in one basket. I see. I mean, are there any... You know, this might be anecdotal, but I mean, are there any 
people, just a regular person that's a real estate investor. Maybe they even have a W-2 job, but you know, people that are, that, that own, you know, 10 or 20 condos, let's say, that are just for corporate. And, and like you're saying, they could be spread out. One could be in Minneapolis, Denver, Atlanta, and that's kind of a big p- part of their portfolio, just out of yeah. curiosity. We do have an investor that um, we worked with here in Denver that the ROI started to, you know, not be as great as what he was looking at. And when we opened our St. Louis franchise, the ROI there was a lot better because he could purchase several more properties, like sell one and buy three kind of thing mm-hmm. um, in that area. And, um, you know, and the one bedroom rates were pretty comparable to um, what we were getting in Denver. So he was able to significantly increase his ROI. So it just kind of depends on the city and the dynamics of its current real estate market when you're purchasing. Yeah. Okay. And what, what would you say is kind of the most as of today? And, you know, maybe this changes, maybe it doesn't. What's the most challenging part of running this business? Well, clearly there's a lot of moving parts, which you could say about pretty much most businesses. The most challenging part, we have many customers. <laughs> so uh, as a franchisor, I have my franchisees. That's one set of customers and I'm looking to expand my franchisees. So that's one customer base. We're targeting property investors to try to get properties into our program. So that's a whole nother customer base. And then we're targeting corporations to have them be the tenants that fill. So we really have three unique customer bases and they're all very different. You have to market to each one of them in a very different way. And uh, so that's probably the most challenging piece is that it's not just like I'm selling widgets to so-and-so and, you know, and I can just target that one customer base. It is the reason the your friend that you bought the company from is the reason they got divorced is because the business was so incredibly difficult. It just drove them crazy. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not going to put words in their mouth. That's for sure. <laughs> I was just kidding. <laughs> okay. No, it's not, it sounds like a, 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 you know, like a lot of things. It sounds like a fantastic opportunity. It's just like anything else. It's, you know, no, nothing is easy. Well, very, very interesting conversation. Is there anything I, you, you, you would like to say that, uh, that I didn't ask you any, any, you know, a shameless plug? This is the place to do it. Did I forget <laughs> to ask you something? Cause I'm so unfamiliar with corporate housing. I'm feeling as though maybe I didn't ask you everything. I mean, I guess if I did my shameless plug, I would say, you know, joining Avenue West and being a part of our group could significantly improve your opportunity if you are interested in going into corporate housing because of that network across the country and us being, you can be small, but be big at the same time. So hopefully if you're interested in in doing this, either as an investor and putting properties with us, or if you're, you know, looking to to start your own business, we, we'd love to talk to you. Got it. Angela, how does somebody find out about you? So our website is avenuewest.com. We're on every social media uh, platform, or you can email us at info at avenuewest.com. Got it. Well, I so much thank you for your time. And uh, it sounds like you've got a fantastic thing going in a great industry. So Very much appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Roger, for having me. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. All right. Talk to you soon. 